0: Heavenly Father, we know that your word is true. We know that we can trust you in all things that you say. And we look to you this morning as we hear from this portion of your word, Lord. We pray for Dave as he uh, preaches that we will all take something home from this Bible reading and from this uh, message this morning. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Six days before the Passover... But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it was written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continue to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, let's pray, shall we? Father, we give you great thanks for that you speak through it And then you show us the way of salvation through faith in your Son. Father, we do pray that you'll be doing this great work in us uh, this morning uh, to grow us to be more and more like Christ, uh, that we may have humble devotion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when it comes to death, people respond very differently from each other. Maybe it depends on your age, because the older you get, the more death you experience. But the way that we respond to death will be quite different. While some of us will disbelieve or even deny death, limiting our awareness of what's happening, others might intellectualise it, rationalise it, bring it in our head, focus on the the medical details and terms to try to attempt to to master the loss. Others can become out of touch with the normal running of life, becoming disorganised or quite dependent, or in the past having been very independent. We can respond to death by being angry, frustrated. We can feel guilt, fear, shame. It can lead to depression. There are many ways that we can respond to death. But what about the raising of someone from the dead? Not the death, but that someone has come back to life and is now living. What was dead is now alive. How do you think people would respond to that? Well, this morning we're going to see a number of different reactions to the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Uh, this morning we are continuing a series that we started last year. At uh, the first half of last year we looked at John chapter 1 all the way to John chapter 11. And that little section is what some people call the, the book of the signs. That is, it's full of these miracles that Jesus has done. But John's gospel, he calls them signs. Because signs, they point to something. It's kind of like your street sign. Your street sign isn't the street. It is just a hunk of metal that points down your street. And so just like a street sign, the signs pointed to something. And the signs that Jesus performed, they pointed to his identity. They showed that he was God's promised future king. He was the Son of God. And there were these great promises that were made earlier, hundreds of years earlier, from the book of Isaiah that said, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute's tongue shout for joy. You see, these were promises made about God's promised future king. And when Jesus came and performed these many signs, this is exactly what he has done. The blind receive their sight. The lame man, paralyzed for 38 years, gets up and walks. You see, Jesus performed many of these wonderful signs, but you see, it wasn't about the signs, it was what the signs were pointing to. And they were pointing to his identity as God's promised future king. He was God in the flesh. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. And I reckon now that I've spent a bit of time preparing John 12, we really should have looked at John 12 last year. We really should have looked at John 1 2 12 last year. Because the way the signs kind of work, there's a sign, these amazing things that Jesus has done. And then there's this discourse, there's this commentary that kind of follows on. Uh, We kind of see that with with the number of signs that have happened. Uh, And in John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus to life. That was the sign. And in the discourse, the commentary that follows, well, that is John 12. Well, with hindsight, we do many things differently. But next time. Anyway, when it comes to John 12, a couple of things that we need to keep in mind, the things we need to remember that will really help us as we work through it. The first thing I've already kind of mentioned is that Jesus did the absolute remarkable he raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was a rotting corpse. Jesus spoke and he was alive. He came to life. And in our passage that Glennus read for us, three times this is mentioned. Have a look there at verse 1. Lazarus whom Jesus raised from the dead. Verse 9. Lazarus who he raised from the dead. And verse 17 when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead. Three times Lazarus is mentioned with the, him being raised from the dead. What happens in 12 is a, is, a, is the fruit of what's happened, it's the consequence afterwards, what, what follows on. Although Lazarus isn't the focus here. Well, that's the first thing to keep in mind, Lazarus has been raised from the dead. Uh, the second is that at the end of chapter 11, the chief peace priests and the Pharisees, they're plotting. They want Jesus dead. They've had enough. They've seen what Jesus done and they want him dead. But Jesus is aware of this and so he stops moving publicly from among the people and starts uh, going uh, uh, a bit more quietly. And so he leaves Bethany where he raised Jesus and he moves north up to Ephraim in the north. So that's what he's done after he's healed Lazarus. So that's second thing. The third thing is that it's the Passover. The Passover is about to take place. The Passover was a yearly event that reminded God's people that God had rescued them out of the slave out of slavery of Egypt and brought them into their own land. And the big key thing was that a lamb died, the lamb died in place of the people. Uh, It was a great reminder. Uh, the Passover, the, that the, that took place. Well, those three things, Lazarus has been raised from the dead, the, they, they're plotting to kill Jesus, and the Passover, these three things are helpful for us to remember as we, as we get into John chapter 12. Well, let's get into it, shall we? Well, with the Passover uh, close uh, on hand, uh, many Jews would head towards Jerusalem. They would go there to prepare and, and to be there for the celebration of the Passover, and Jesus, like many Jews, did the same. He leaves his place in Ephraim and heads south past Jerusalem uh, to Bethany uh, where he had raised Lazarus. And and, and Bethany is about three kilometres uh, kind of east of um, Jerusalem. And we see in verse 1, we see a time reference. Have a look there. We are six days before the Passover. We are six days before the Passover, that is... We're in the final week of Jesus' life before he is betrayed, before he suffers and dies on the cross, before his burial. We are less than a week before that moment. And so with Jesus back in Bethany, uh, a dinner party is thrown with him as their guest of honour. They're so thankful that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. They want to throw him at a dinner party. But have a look what happens at the dinner party. Have a look there from verse 3. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. You see, Lazarus' sister, uh, Mary, she shows humble devotion to Jesus. Because she is so thankful that Jesus has raised her brother Lazarus uh, from the dead. And so what does she do? Well, she pours a pint, that is about 500 mils. Think of a, a large shampoo bottle. And she pours all of it, all of it, all over his feet, the whole thing. And it's pure nard. That is, it's an expensive perfume that comes all the way from northern India And as you'd imagine before the budget airlines, it would have cost a fortune to get this stuff all the way over. And we actually see in verse 5 how expensive it is. It's actually worth a year's wages. That is, 300 denarii in other other translations. A year's wages, that is a lot of money. I did a bit of a Google search uh, this week and a couple of years ago the average... Income in Victoria, the average was $80,000. $80,000. And so just imagine it. Mary pours an $80,000 of perfume over Jesus. Now I wonder what you'd do if you had a fancy guest come to your place. Say Scott Morrison, maybe not so fancy. Uh, the Queen, insert some famous pop star or some dude you like that you would like that you consider fancy. They come to your place for dinner. And you'd pull out all the you'd put on a show for them, wouldn't you? <laughs> you'd want to impress your guests. It's so a maybe you'd want to pull out a bottle of wine that you acquired from auction. The nineteen fifty one Penfolds Grange that sold for a mere eighty thousand dollars. Maybe you'd want to open this for your distinguished fancy guests because you think a fancy guest deserves a fancy bottle of wine. But when it comes to a bottle of wine like this, and if we open it for, for our guests, shall we do it in part for our guests to go, oh, you, you are worthy of this great gift? But actually, a big part of it is about us too. Ah, oh, look how fancy I am. I have this very nice bottle of wine that I am willing to share with you, oh fancy guest you. And while we may open some extravagant gift like this to show off our wealth, That is not what is on view here for Mary. It is absolutely not what is on view. You see, she pours this perfume on Jesus in costly, humble devotion because she anoints Jesus' feet. You see, the feet were dirty. Feet were dirty work. The people who cleaned the feet, which were cleaned, feet were cleaned often and usually done by water, were servants. Washing feet was servants' work. Because if you think about it, they're wearing sandals. They don't have these enclosed shoes. They have exposed feet. And they're walking around in the mud and the poo and the gross stuff. It's all on the ground all over the place. That's what they're kind of walking through. His feet, their feet are gross. They're disgusting. And yet Mary anoints Jesus' feet. What she's doing is she's lowering herself. She's humbling herself in service of Jesus in her act of devotion. You see, Mary is so grateful to Jesus. She's so grateful that she, that he raised her brother from the dead, that is willing to lower herself in humble, uh, costly devotion of Jesus. But you see, not everyone has this sentiment. Judas, one of the disciples, He shows betraying greed. You see, Judas sees Mary's devotion. Uh, in verse 4, he objects. And he asks in verse 5, have a look there, he says, Why wasn't this perfume sold? And the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And look, it's a good point, isn't it? $80,000 is a lot of money. It could have done so much good. But you see, we see, we have the privilege of seeing Judas's real motive here. He didn't even care about the poor. He just wanted the money. He wanted to get his dirty little hands on the money. because he would have liked to as we see there in verse six, he was a thief, and 80,000 well, he could have uh, helped himself quite nicely to a bit of that money. You see, Judas was two-faced, like Batman's enemy, two-face. On the one hand, he was the disciple. He did the disciple thing. He did the good thing. He lived and walked with the others, uh, with Jesus, and he'd obviously been able to gain their trust. That he was able to, to look after the money and, and keep hold of the money bag. He was able to portray himself as the good guy he thought himself to be. But see, on the other side, the dark side, he seemed to just be hanging out with Jesus for what he could get out of it. He wanted to gain stuff from Jesus, maybe popularity and fame that would lead to fortune, but certainly money. He wanted money. You see, he stole money, helping himself to the proceeds found within. He was a thief. and While he might have been able to pull the wool over the disciples' eyes, Jesus knows the real Judas, who in only a few days' time would betray Jesus in his greed for money. You see, Judas' love of money was his downfall. He compromised on the truth and sought after wealth and it led him down an awful, sinful path. He was compromised for the, for the fleeting pleasures of the world. And despite being so close to Jesus, one of the 12 disciples... He compromised it all and was led into a world of sin. And you see, this is a danger for us too. You see, we live in a world that is obsessed with money and stuff, material possessions, and we too can get sucked into these things as well. And so, if Judas, very close to Jesus, was compromised, we shouldn't be surprised when we see people in the church who are compromised as well and fall into sin because of their love of money. Because if it happens to Jesus, it's definitely going to happen among us. And so while we might be tempted to compromise on the truth and be led to sin and to live for money instead of Christ, let Judas be a great example and warning for us. Because as Mark 8 teaches, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Well, Jesus explains to Judas what Mary has done as as she has anointed his feet. Have a look there at verse 7. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. See, Mary, in her costly, humble devotion, what she does, completely unawares, Is she prepares Jesus for his death, for his burial. You see, in God's sovereignty, in God's control, in God's foreknowledge, in God's plan, Mary's devotion prepares Jesus for his death. And so as we enter this final week, this final week of Jesus on earth, we see that Jesus knows he's gonna die. He knows he is going to die. It has always been the plan. In fact, we have seen hints of it in in the first half of of John's Gospel. Do you remember back in chapter 3 and chapter 8, it said that the Son of Man would be lifted up. That is, Jesus would be lifted up onto the cross to die. And in chapter 10, we see that the Good Shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus knows, he's always known that he's about to die and that his death is imminent, it's close, and that his death is necessary because it is the only way he can save his people. You see, the Passover was such an important part of the life of the Jewish person. It was a great reminder that God had rescued them, that the lamb died in place of the firstborn, that the lamb died in place of the people. And that is the same for Jesus. He too will die in place of his people. And you see, this isn't the first time this connection of Jesus being the lamb is is connected. Right at the very start of of John's Gospel, uh, John the Baptist, who sees Jesus for the first time, he says, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the sacrificial lamb who will die in place of his people. He dies for our sin. You see, sin is opposition to God. It is hatred towards God. It's the rejection of God. And it is what we are slaves to. We are all slaves to sin. And unless we're rescued from it, we will die and perish in our sin. Unless we believe, we will perish and God's wrath remains on us. But for those who do believe, well, life is granted to them. And this life can only be granted. This life can only become through the death of Jesus. You see, Jesus must die because it is the only hope of life. You see, Mary's costly, humble devotion. Mary prepares Jesus for his death and burial. Well, after uh, Mary responds in this uh, beautiful way, next we see the chief priests respond to the raising of Lazarus. And what we see is that the chief priests have a murderous plot the chief priests were concerned by the vast numbers of people they felt who were, who were going over and following Jesus, who were believing in him. And the chief priests and, and, and the Pharisees, they had seen the amazing things that Jesus has done. They'd seen him give sight to the blind, heal the lame, raise the dead. They had seen him do these things. Notice they do not deny these things. They don't deny that Jesus did these things. But instead of welcoming God's promised future king and believe, well, actually, they want him dead. They want him dead. They've seen it all, yet they want him dead. And I wonder if it's like conversations you might have had with some unbelieving friends. You might hear something like, oh, if I'd been there, if i had seen it with my own eyes, if i had seen the miracles, if I'd seen this, well, then I would believe. If only I could have seen it, then I would believe. I wonder if you've had conversations like that with people before. But would they really? The chief priests and the fact phar- they saw it all. They do not deny it. But they do not believe in him. You see, they reject Jesus. They want him dead because they're a fear of losing the privilege of losing their status, of losing the power that they have over, over the Jews. They want his blood because they fear that the Romans will come and take their power away. They fear that if they follow Jesus, that they will forfeit their power and status. They fear losing what they've got. And because Lazarus is the one who's been raised raised from the dead, he now is a problem as well. Because people are seeing Lazarus and like, whoa, look at this girl, whoa. And so people are coming in to follow and wanting to believe in Jesus too. And so, like Jesus, Lazarus is also a problem, so he's got to be dealt with as well. You see, they've got to cover up the evidence. They've got to kill them both that they can cover it up. You see, their murderous plot seeks to cover up the evidence that Lazarus has been raised from the dead. You see, their motive is fear. They fear losing the privilege and status that they have. Because, look, they've probably got a pretty good, they're like top dog as far as the Jews concerns. And you know what? They're probably right. When we start following Jesus... We become different people. Not not that we do what we do for a living changes or what we might do from day to day, but, but our goals and, and our desires and, and the like these change because we have a new master, we have a new Lord, we have a new king who we want to live for and serve. We want to live for a way that pleases him. And so following Jesus actually does change us as we put off the old self and put on Christ and live like him, our status and the like might change. And you see, whilst the status and privilege and success and power that the world may offer us, really it is fleeting and does not last. Nothing compares to the the riches and hopes of eternal life that only Jesus can give. You see, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they do not think it's worth it. And so they come up with a murderous plot to kill Jesus. <coughs> well, finally we see the crowd's response. Finally we see the crowd's response to Jesus, and they are fickle. They are in. They have inconsistent devotion. You see, Jesus. He leaves Bethany. And, and heads to Jerusalem, and the crowds, the crowds come flocking to welcome him in. And, and there's probably quite a crowd. They reckon at that, at that point, heaps and heaps and heaps of people would kind of come to Jerusalem for the Passover. And they, they reckon that there was probably about a million people, a million people flooded into Jerusalem at this moment. And so there is quite a crowd who have heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And so Jesus makes his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And have a look there at verse 13. They, that is the crowds, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. You see, they shout out a, a famous psalm, Psalm 118. A well-known psalm about the King of Israel entering his holy city. But see what the Psalm doesn't do explicitly, it doesn't say anything clearly about it being the King of, of Israel. But see the crowd makes him, makes what is implicit explicit. They definitely know that Jesus is the King. They think, No, 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 Jesus He is the King of Israel, He is the King from Psalm one hundred and eighteen and so they say Blessed is the King. Of Israel, you see, they see Jesus as the all-powerful, all-conquering King. He is the one who has raised the dead, given sight to the blind. Therefore, he must be the King. They think, Ah, he is the King who will come to defeat the enemies, their enemies, the Romans who are oppressing them at the time. The Roman dominion will be defeated at last. They think that Jesus has come as the King of Israel to cause an uprising against the Romans to bring the everlasting peace that has been promised. But you see, they've got it wrong. They have got it wrong. That is not how Jesus will bring peace. Jesus will not bring peace by causing an uprising. And So what does Jesus do? He jumps on a donkey and makes his way in, and that makes it very, very clear. You see, one's transportation says a lot about a person. Like the cars of the rich and famous, like Donald Trump. Do you know he has this car? It's called The Beast. It's a Cadillac one. It's worth about $2.5 million. It's got armoured walls, tear gas cannons, and blood supply. It says nothing's going to get to me in here, and so if I'm injured, I'm gonna live. So get out of my way. That's what I think it says. The next up is the, the Queens, our, our sovereign queen, her Bentley State limousine. Is there another picture there, Mac? Anyway, there's a, here it is, beautiful. Worth a staggering 21 million dollars. Anyway, it provides much protection like all these cars you'd expect, but it says, I want my protection in style. Thank you very much. You see, one's transportation says a lot about the person. As Jesus jumps onto the donkey, he deliberately does that as he rides into Jerusalem. You see, Jesus doesn't jump on a war horse, I'm ready to bring you together and cause this uprising. No, no, no. He rides on a donkey, a sign of humbleness. (coughs) It is the humble donkey who comes to bring Peace. You see, Jesus is the king who comes in peace. As Zechariah 9, where this is quoted from, he comes lowly and riding on a donkey. Jesus is not the king they expect. And so Jesus quells their expectations. He suppresses their expectations that he is this all conquering king who will come and cause the uprising, wipe them out by coming in on the humble donkey who comes in peace. You see, they are right that Jesus is the King of Israel, but the way to his throne is not through uprising and mighty battles as they expect. His path to glory comes through the gruelling, humiliating cross, but it is for their good, and it is the only hope of life that can be found, is through his gruelling death. You see, the crowd's devotion of Jesus is fickle. It's changing, it's inconsistent. Because these same people who give Jesus this, this hero's welcome as he comes into Jerusalem, only a few days later cry, crucify, crucify him. Their devotion is fickle. You see, the crowd's reaction can be like those we may know around us who at the start they seem quite interested in Jesus but when push comes to shove they abandon him. They don't want to have anything to do with him. It's kind of like my upbringing actually. My mother became a Christian and took me to church as a teenager and I followed the crowd to church and followed a different crowd away from church not wanting anything to do with the church for a very, very long time. I followed the crowd. What they did. and I think there is much similarity with the crowd who who follows Jesus in praise and in rejection a few days later. I think we can see that among those around us today. You see, Jesus did the incredible. He raised the rotting corpse, Lazarus, from the grave. He gave him life. But there are many, many different responses to Jesus. Remarkable thing Jesus did, but there are remarkable different responses. How are we going to respond to Jesus, I wonder? Are we like Judas, who want to milk Jesus for all he's got, only interested in what we can get out of him? Or like the chief priests who fear the loss of their status and seek to remove Jesus from their life? if their status may be changed. Like the crowds whose opinion changed with the wind, whose expectations of Jesus weren't met, who, who fear that what the media say is true rather than what Christ says. Or would be like Mary, who serves with costly, humble devotion as a genuine follower of Jesus, who sought to serve the Lord And brought God glory in the meantime. Jesus says in Matthew's gospel on this event, truly I tell you, whenever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done, what Mary has done, will also be told in memory of her. Mary will not be forgotten for her costly, humble devotion of the Lord. May we be like Mary in service of our great Lord. Let's, let's pray together and ask God for his help. <coughs> Father God Almighty, we give you great thanks for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that he knew that he was going to die, that he needed to die, because it was the only way that we, he could deal with our sin. It was the only way that we could have hope of life uh, through his death. We do pray that we would not be ashamed of this but would be so grateful for it that it would lead us to be like Mary, that we would serve you in costly, humble devotion. Help us serve like Mary did in our loving service of you. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.